Being an expert sucks. As a teacher of spiritual intelligence and emotional health, I get cornered into being the guy who has all the answers. I'd like to take this opportunity to make a confession. I don't. What I do have are convictions. I have theories. I have questions. I find myself looking around and I'm like, we can't stay here. Stop setting up your tent. We can't stay here. Through my journey, it's become evident that being a participant is no longer enough. It's time to become reformers. These are my confessions. To get deeper in this conversation, visit MikeMayashiro.com. All right, welcome to part two of my interview with Andrew Kerbs, the man behind Deconstruct Everything. In this interview, Andrew talks about the healing process of the effects of deconstruction, uh, his story on how he became an ally to the LGBTQ plus community, and what he believes the function and purpose of therapy is, which I thought this part of the conversation was really interesting. Of the two parts of my interview with Andrew, I think this one is the better one. <laughs> I hope you enjoy it. Here we go. Yeah, so it was one thing after another. <laughs> wow. Yeah, that's quite the barrage of like significant negative impacts. <coughs> Sorry about that. <coughs> Sorry, a tickle in my throat. Yes, it was quite a bit. Um, and um, it was... I was only at that mobile crisis job too. That was another thing. I was, I, my mental health was at such a place where I was jumping. I was just jumping jobs, like one job to the next. Like I would stay for maybe five or six months, if even that. And then I would leave because it just, the anxiety, the just, I just, just daily life, just waking up and just taking care of yourself, showering, making the bed, getting dressed, like that stuff was overwhelming. And, um, and again, people who I know, especially who have had undiagnosed ADHD for like, that's, that won't sound too surprising, but when you take that and you take all these other things and you just put it all on top of each other, it's like things were definitely coming to a head where it was like, absolutely unmanageable. It was not sustainable um, at all. Wow. Um, I forgot where I was going with that, but. I have a couple um, questions. Absolutely. I was going to say anything. If Yeah, yeah. absolutely. So, um, when you talk about your system not being regulated or being dysregulated, can you, I know there are people in my audience who probably don't have a grid for what that means, what that entails. Mm-hmm. Can you just give a brief little like. Yeah, absolutely. So the mouth of like, what is it? What do you mean by regulating your system and being dysregulated and all that? Yeah. So just the idea in trauma work. Um, so, I mean, it, it actually is really quite simple just the idea in trauma work i mean being nervous system work being dysregulated just talking about like my fight or flight my fight or flight part of my nervous system so my sympathetic nervous system just kind of being perpetually activated um that's kind of the state that i was in you know like enough crazy traumatic things had happened in my life that i was kind of just on this perpetual state of hypervigilance, never really being able to rest, be present, be content, be grounded in my body. Um, so yeah, that, to, to put it into concrete terms, like that's the best way I can describe it is like, I just kind of had this low grade nervous system activation, sympathetic nervous system activation that just never really completely went away. And it, and it was just progressively getting worse and worse. Um, I mean, our bodies are not made to do that. They're made to activate that when there's a threat, handle the threat, then come back down 
regulated get well and then your parasympathetic nervous system steps in and does its job that's the one that does all the regulatory unconscious functions like heart rate breathing all of that um and um yeah and another reason i know that that's what was happening is i, I kind of had like started having like digestive issues during this time too which again anyone who has complex trauma like knows like that's that's a big one that doesn't mean if you have gut issues you have trauma i'm not saying that but there is a very big positive correlation to to having those types of issues because you have this ongoing activation where your parasympathetic nervous system is not able to be doing its job because you're always activated you're always fight or flight mode basically so basically you're saying to the the audience right now like hey just so you know if your normal is being in fight or flight mode um that's not normal it's actually not healthy to be living in that state all the time you right so just I think that's helpful for people to know because I think there are a lot of people out there who are kind of just surviving in that kind of like maybe like a yeah. lower version of that state of being activated all the time and not realizing that that's not normal that you're not supposed to be living like that it's not good for you it's having negative like adverse effects on your body and your mental health and all that so um yes yeah absolutely yeah it's not yeah yeah two, so two things to that point because that is incredibly important the whole trauma piece um yeah, so you're right. It's not, it's not normal. Um, I do think there are a lot of things out there that people are dealing with that they actually don't realize are trauma related. Um, and trauma does have very real implications for health outcomes, like non mental health related health outcomes. Um, I don't know if you I don't know if you've heard of like the, the whole ACE study, the whole um, adverse childhood experiences. Um, loosely like loosely yeah if you've heard of like the ace questionnaire and that being like a, a um a tool for measuring like trauma like that's that's the thing that you'll hear people talk about a lot um i do have some issues with it because actually it arguably wouldn't detect religious trauma but again the point though that i'm getting at that whole study they they really made um i mean i think a lot of people kind of knew this but they put together a really a really um good collection of literature like really establishing the connection the, the correlation between traumatic childhood events and negative health, health outcomes throughout the adult lifespan. Um, and that's everything from, um, I mean, just blood pressure and, but to also like diabetes and chronic pain. And I mean, and I'm not saying that trauma causes all of these things, but what I am saying though, is that to have an ongoingly activated sympathetic nervous system, especially as a kid, absolutely has implications and can lead to a much higher likelihood of developing some of these other negative health outcomes as an adult. Um, and so that that's where that piece comes in as far as like, just, yeah, it's it, trauma work is really it's nervous system work. If you really look at it, just in a sense of it being another system of the body. Um, and there's more and more research lately. I mean, it's, it is very much evidence-based and grounded and I say it's grounded in research. It is grounded in research. I will also have to acknowledge that I feel like, trauma and that whole language has kind of taken on a life of its own in social media spaces where a lot of people are kind of calling everything trauma and while a lot of things are trauma i think sometimes being very loose with the language and the definition can sometimes be unhelpful that being said i am very grateful people are talking about it more because that i think is important because i think there have been so many people who are actually dealing with untreated trauma and did not know that that's what they were dealing with mm. um so it's one of those things where, I, I mean, I think it could rightfully be called a two-edged sword. I'm glad people are talking about it more. 
And I'm certainly not trying to gatekeep and say, oh, you have to be a clinician to have a, an opinion that matters. Like, no, you don't. Your lived experience matters a lot. Um, it's just one of those things, kind of balancing the two things at the same time, you know? Mm. Yeah, totally. Cool. Thank you. Um, I'm curious also when you talk about, this is like jumping maybe a couple subjects ago, but you were talking about being in certain like certain things already being true about you, you just didn't know it yet or hadn't like declared it or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, in some of those periods of time were years at a time, right? Would you say you needed to, for it to go that long? Was it, if you had known things, could those periods of time have been shorter? Are there ways you like that could have not been as prolonged of a, of an exacerbated negative, ex excuse me, experience? Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, Theoretically, probably it could have gone faster if I had been doing like intensive therapy earlier in my life. But um, it's one because it's funny. I actually get asked questions similar to that a lot as a as a as what I'm doing now, religious trauma coach. Like the idea that someone might be like, "Well, I know this is going to be uncomfortable, so can I just like see you twice a week and just kind of like plow through this and get it over quick?" You know, like that kind of thing. They're like, "I don't want to be doing this for five years," which I I get. I understand that. Um, but I think at the same time, when it comes, especially when it comes to trauma type work, you can't rush it. Sometimes you just need that space and that time. Um, and then especially when you tie in just the whole grieving process, which to me, I really put the whole grieving process and grief work right in the midst of trauma work. I think that's important too, especially when we are talking about people who are either leaving their faith altogether or at least very fundamentally changing it to such an extent where it's creating distress within their family relationships or whatever, you know, or their job, if they were a pastor and they questioned the wrong thing for their denomination, those types of situations. Um, um, sorry, I'm not trying to think, I might have like three trains of thought here. I'm trying to keep on track all simultaneously. That's always good. <laughs> but um, yeah, I think that it does sometimes just have to be that long time-wise. Yeah. Um, I can even speak for myself that this last year, so I've been doing this full-time working from home thing for a year and it's turned out great. I'm very excited about how it's turned out. But I've one thing I also noticed that I actually kind of was feeling crappy about myself because of was that I'm, you know, I work from home. I don't have a commute anymore. The actual hours I'm working are not bad at all. They're like very diminished. I just see, you know, two or three clients a day kind of a thing. And so like, that's, I'm really not working that vigorously. And then I'm like, I'm, I'm like reflecting over the year and it's like feeling like I haven't done anything. I'm like, I'm taking all these naps. I'm just doing things like reading books, not because I need to for work or just because I just wanted to read this book. There's like, in other words, like this has nothing to do with deconstruction. There's nothing to do with psychology. I just wanted to read this damn book. Like I like this author. Um, and it's really been, I think, you know, it's funny. I, it's one of those things that is a blind spot because I literally work with clients on self-compassion and intentional rest and all of these things that I sometimes really suck at doing for myself. And I'm just realizing how, no, actually, based on where I've been over the past few years, like, no, I think my body just needed this, this year of rest, basically, where I'm kind of like shifting gears and, you know, I'm still working, still doing my thing, but like, I've really changed the pace. And yeah, I'm not, from an outward perspective, 
doing as much, but that's what needed to be done. Resting was doing the work in this case. And um, anyway, all of that to say back to your initial question. Yeah, I think sometimes I don't, I just don't think you can rush healing and it's going to look different for everybody based on so many factors. Now you, you maybe can change, you know, the pace a little bit, but at the end of the day, it's like, you can't force it. You can't rush it. It's your body. Your body is going to know what it needs to do and when it's safe to do, to do so. And um, I'm really big on just really just, you know, listening to your body and your intuition. And that's where a lot of the work is at. And if things start going more quickly, cool, that's, that's okay. That's great. But again, listening to that intuition, um, because if you try to force the issue and just force things to happen, you're going to have a bad time. Right. <laughs> Doesn't end well. You need, you know, that's yeah. Yeah. Nice. Okay. So with your religious trauma coaching that you do and the different kinds of people that you see on a regular basis or what have you, are there general, I don't want to oversimplify this, but are there general like tips or things you would share that you've observed about like what you're seeing across the board with the people you're working with in terms of their, like working through their religious trauma? Yeah. Um, or like signs for people to pay attention to that might be indicative that they have religious trauma they're just not even conscious of, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, to that last question you said, yeah, that's a, yeah. So like, if, I mean, if going into church, if different parts of a church service or different hymns, songs, praise songs, whatever, you are noticing elicits like a strong bodily reaction, like, I mean, it can be something intense like nausea or something less intense, like you just always find yourself kind of having to kind of just brain fog, just kind of go spacey and you're just trying to like almost low-key dissociate sort of. Mm. Um, that, I mean, that honestly is telling me that there's something that your body is finding distressing and unsafe about this environment. Um, so I mean, again, I'm all about like, be in tune with and listen to, you know, what your body's telling you. Um, if something does not feel right, that's because something is not right. Um, it, you, you don't, and you don't have to have a rational explanation or narrative or understand why your body's reacting that way. That's, that's not the discussion you need to have right now. Just for right now, it's like, if you're feeling that like, you're okay, but you're feel, if you're feeling it, you're feeling it. That part is valid. Um, because I know some people will then like push back with like, well, you know, um, what's the phrase I've heard? Like your feelings, your feelings aren't facts, you know, like you can feel these things, but the, the whole idea of like, you need to be, you know, don't trust your body because it's again, your heart's deceitful or your flesh is sinful and wicked. Like those, all of those different narratives, yeah. you know, if, if you're having to take those narratives to stuff down feelings of just not feeling safe in your body, like that's, that's a big red flag for sure. Um, so that's a, that's a big one <laughs> to say the least. And um, as far as other things I've noticed, I, I just to give some validation to other folks who are going through similar journeys. One of the biggest theme, well, a couple, there's a few themes, but one of the big, a couple of the big ones I see a lot of, a lot of folks dealing with when it comes to why they left the church or rather why they didn't go back because COVID really 
created a convenient out for many, many, many people. But the reasons then that like the further, the longer they were out that they then witnessed and chose to never go back was um, not only the church's collective response to the pandemic of generally like another, and what I mean by that is like refusing to mask, being vocally anti, anti-vaccination um, and just being all around. And, and again, it's fine to have your opinions on that, but the spirit of belligerence and just complete, un, just so unkind how so many of these church mm-hmm. folks interacted with people they disagreed with mm-hmm. that, that is the piece that a lot of people were like, this is so not like, this is so abusive. Like the way that you are engaging with people around you, like, and it's so not a spirit of love or compassion or any of these things. Um, and then the other piece that even was before that was the, um, let's see here. Sorry, my screen just minimized because somebody tried to call me. I apologize. The other piece that happens that I see happen a lot is witnessing how the church collectively responded to the death of George Floyd. And I should be clear, not the death of George Floyd, but the fact that most churches were silent about the death of George Floyd, but then wanted to speak up against the protests in response to the death of George Floyd. So it's like, it's one thing to just not ever make statements, but when you are in fact making statements from the pulpit and the statements you are making say nothing about basically the state execution of a black man, but now you have problems because there's protests in the streets. Right. That's, I think that that piece was, that was a big one for a lot of people. They're like, right. it just... Yeah. So yeah. To, so to be clear, again, not not that not the initial piece, but just the church's reaction to things in um, in current events and current uh, that are going on in the world. That was a big one. Mm. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. That was a crazy time. That was cra- and I was also like in a pretty interesting specific process when that was all going on. And I remember I have some very vivid memories of that period of time, and it was crazy. Um, as well down that road, I'm curious, you've, I've saw you on social media, you've made some pretty strong stances in advocating for the trans community, for the queer community. Um, have you always been an ally? Where did that come from? Where is this conviction and like willingness to step in for that community? Like, where's that coming from? Oh, where is that coming from? I mean, the reality is like, I, I recognize that that community, especially in evangelicalism and of course my specific background is conservative adventism but kind of a similar vein they are not affirming um yeah i mean full transparency i'm thinking like jumping back in time like 15 years i was probably one of those people who was not affirming like i i would say like oh i don't care if you're gay but then still have all kinds of these you know biases, anti-gay, anti-trans biases that I would then probably project on everybody around me. I, I can't remember specifics, but I'm just remembering, I mean, I was a conservative Christian and I was all about that life. So I know that I definitely would have, was probably one of those people where I would have probably many years ago said, oh, well, you know, I mean, it's okay that you're gay, just as long as you don't X, Y, Z, like as long as you stay celibate and don't get married or whatever. Basically it's okay to be gay as long as you don't act gay, that kind of bullshit um so yeah at one point I was probably in that camp um you know I 
have had a number of close friends through the years who have either been trans, who come out as trans, non-binary, gay, bi, um, asexual. Yeah. And so it's like, I think just that coupled with just knowing what it does, especially to kids, their mental health, when they grow up in, in an environment that is not affirming um, and knowing the difference that it can make to have one adult in their life who is affirming like that down the flip side too. Like even if they do grow up in a, a toxic environment, but to have one adult that is a safe person, like the difference that that can make um, that definitely motivated me, I think to like start, well, to start unpacking more when I say unpacking though, I mean, like this was still when I was still kind of in the church. So like I was now starting to like study theology as to why, you know, like the whole thing of like, well, homosexuality was a word that wasn't even in the Bible until 1946, like that, th those types of studies, you know, I started going down that. I didn't do that very long because I very fairly quickly decided, well, actually, I don't think the Bible is an errant or authoritative or inspired anyway. So who cares? Just throw it out. But that definitely um, was where I started going because I just recognized the harm, I think. And that was even before I fully had my master's degree. So, you know, I, um, I think a lot of it is in hindsight, I think really just came down to, I did have different friends in high school that as, as the years have gone by, have come out as again, trans or non-binary or what, what have you. And I just remember <laughs> high school was like another time in my life that was not pleasant. And yet I can only imagine what that would have been like for me. If I, on top of all the other shit I was dealing with, I also was gay, for example, like having to carry that. And an ad, cause I went to an Adventist Academy where, I mean, if you came out as gay, like, I'm not sure how they would handle that. I think they would probably have tried to, coerce you into bible studies to denounce your sinful ways and if you refused and it's like no i'm gay and we're proud of it you probably would have been asked to leave the school i'm i mean to be dead serious with you i think that's probably what would have happened um and so just seeing that remembering that and just knowing the impact that it has um yeah i mean there's not really anything more to it than that it's just really just yeah knowing the statistics that I do and the field that I, I mean, being in the mental health field and all of that, I just, it just, it's, it's been so much harm that's been caused and so much of it has been caused by conservative Christianity, fundamentalist Christianity mm. in this country. Yeah, totally. Shoot. Wow. Um, okay. So I guess this feels more like maybe a big picture overview type question, but I'm I want to know um, what are some of the big things that were deal breakers for you when it came to Christianity, the Bible, you know, that whole school of thought. Um, what were some of the big ones that you're like, yeah, this was like a, a no, this was a deal breaker. Right? This was a no go for me. Um, if you could generally point to some of the big ones. Yeah. So for me and and in fairness, some of this, again, could be more, I suppose, Adventist specific, but definitely the two big ones that got me to the point where I'm like, yeah, screw this, was, again, not being LGBTQ affirming at all, because Adventism is not. They're just simply not. They make no room for that. And um, not allowing women to be ordained to ministry. That was another big one. Um, 
I think, and I think another piece, and this again, admittedly is more about the behavior of Christians, not actual texts or theology mm. and theory, but just the presentation of, the, or the incongruence rather of what you preach is not even close to what you do. And so again, it's a matter of conscience. I'm not going to continue to be associated with or support an institution that you might say some things that sound good, but what you actually are doing and what you're actually supporting is quite the opposite and quite harmful, arguably. And so I refuse to have anything to do with it. Um, but maybe that's not what you were asking because I, I realize now as I'm saying it, that is that is more church specific and not necessarily like Christianity and like in the theological scriptural sense. Well, I think that's relevant. I think church culture is another factor, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Thanks. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, um, I was at lunch today with a friend and we were just catching up and whatever. And we both like heavily deconstructed over the last couple of years. And I was like, just kind of talking out loud. I'm like, I think I still identify on like an emotional level as a Christian, but technically based on what I believe or don't believe anymore, I don't know. I think based on Christian's definitions of what's acceptable to be one of them, I'm pretty sure, you know, I walked away from that a long time ago, but as far as like, yeah, so I guess it depends on who's like, what are we acknowledging as central or like as tenets of the faith to actually like qualify you as being considered, you know, one of us or whatever. But so just like, even to talk about that, I'm like, it's very possible I'm not a Christian anymore and I just don't know it yet. You know, I just haven't accepted that or like recognized the degree to which I've actually divested from this whole system. Mm -hmm. I'm currently presently at the recording of this, not conscious that I'm not a Christian. <laughs> I still think that I'm a Christian on some level, um, but I'm also very aware of some things that I don't believe anymore. I'm like, I actually don't think this is founded. I don't think this is substantiated. I don't think this is legitimate. Uh, so it's awkward, you know, how loud and aggressive Christians get about some of these things. But anyway, so I'm like, I'm at a point in my deconstruction process. It's not to the point that you got to. Um, but I did have a couple of chunks in this last year where there was like a month or so of days in a row where I would wake up and I'm like, what am I doing? What's the point? Uh, and I hated it. I didn't feel like there's no part of me that wanted to die, but I was like, what's the point? I don't, I have nothing to look forward to. I don't know where this, any of this is going. You know, it was kind of aimless, you know, like, and I was like, oh, this sucks. And eventually I was like, am I depressed? I might be depressed. Um, I wanted to ask you in this context, um, just also because it was like work for me to figure out where it was and what was going on. What are some symptoms that people can recognize? Like, oh, you might actually be what clinical psychology would diagnose as depressed. What, what does that look like for people? Yeah. Asking about like depression specifically or just, yeah. Okay. Okay. Cause what I was gonna say, cause I mean, yeah, well, so that specifically, I mean, I know that the stereotypical thing you think of is sadness in that whole area, which yes, it can be that it can also be the all the, the hopelessness piece despair, but honestly, depression, I mean, in the clinical sense can also just look like not finding joy in things you normally would be interested in. Um, it can look like it yeah. can look like feeling fatigued, lethargic, apathetic. It can look like that. It doesn't have to be overt sadness or hopelessness, and it certainly doesn't have to be suicidality. Mm. 
Yeah, um, that was me. I wasn't in I wasn't particularly sad. I wasn't suicidal, but I did feel a lack of connection to things that used to bring me joy. I found a lack of motivation to do things that I used to like want to do. I'm like, oh no, it's missing. Where did it go? And it keeps not being there. Yeah. I feel depressed. Yeah, yeah. It was absolutely that. Yeah. And and in the context of deconstruction too, that because again, I recognize depression, especially in this context, as I mean, it's a stage of grief as well. Like, and if we're talking about shifting faith, whatever direction you're going, I mean, there's going to be then frameworks that you probably are also leaving behind and outgrowing. And there is going to be a level of grieving to that, of which depression is a part. And so, you know, I, I think really the biggest thing, and the biggest thing I would say, as far as, um, I mean, I, if you want to call it advice, but like just really trying to be, well, two things, be curious, like, you know, curious, but then also really just try to have that spirit of self-compassion because, you know, it can be very distressing, whatever it is that you're experiencing. I mean, depression is not fun. Um, religious trauma, what in all of its different manifestations is not enjoyable, but you know, it's your body is doing its best to survive. And I think the more curiosity and um, compassion we can bring to that equation, the, I mean, the better, the less distressing, all of that. Mm. But, um, but yeah, that what you just described. Yeah, that, that sounds like depression for sure. It only lasted like a month, month and a half. Okay. Um, is that, is that, is that allowed? Do is, that, I not, is that pertinent information? Yeah. Like, so do I get to consider depression if it didn't last for like longer than like a month and a half? So that is a thing. Um, well, from a clinical diagnostic perspective, they would want to know how long it's been lasting. I don't remember all the specific parameters, but if it's something that has not been around that long, and especially if there is any particular identifiable stressor that's happened in the past X amount of days or whatever, um, they might call that, so in diagnostic terms, they might call that an adjustment disorder. Like in other words, it's literally just, you're struggling to adapt to a new stressor in life, whatever that may be. Now, if it persists beyond that, that's when you move from adjustment disorder to potentially something like depression or anxiety, um, or something else altogether. But, um, yeah, I, not to go off on a tangent, but I have my own strong feelings about diagnostics and all of that. I mean, that's part of why I'm doing what I'm doing now and have allowed some of my licenses to just go away because I, while I recognize diagnostics have their use, I also recognize the limitations of it, especially this, this American healthcare model, which is very, it's a medical model. It's not a wellness model, meaning it's about symptom management, least, least amount of care that you can possibly get by with to reduce symptoms. And then that's what we're going to do. So the whole idea of preventative and proactive healthcare, especially in a mental health care sense, just, there's just no room for it. Insurance isn't going to reimburse for that. Medicaid sure as hell doesn't reimburse for that. Um, and, and then also like the work that I do, if this was in, um, like accepting insurance, I have a lot of people coming to me that don't maybe qualify for a diagnosis exactly, but they are just wanting to continue working on things. They want to continue working on themselves. But if it was being reimbursed by insurance, I would have to come up with a diagnosis to justify that treatment. Mm. And I might be able to ride with adjustment disorder at first. It's about the most benign diagnosis you can give. But there, after a certain amount of sessions, the insurance would be like, okay, we're, we're not going to keep it reimbursing if this is all they're dealing with. 
And so we, then I'm faced with the ethical dilemma of like, okay, should I say they have MDD, major depressive disorder, if I don't really think they do? Also knowing that this is going to be now on your medical record. And I want you to continue being able to access this service and not have to pay for it. But I, you know, it's, it's just that whole mess. Yeah. Wow. Anyway, that's a little bit of a tangent, but definitely inf- speaks to why I'm doing coaching and not therapy. Um, I do have all the clinical training of a therapist. I just am very intentionally, again, it's a matter of conscience. Same, same reason I left my church. <laughs> it's a matter of conscience that I'm kind of finding myself depart from that, that thing. Yeah. yeah. So how would you di- distinguish or differentiate your therapy from your coaching? What do you do differently in your coaching that you don't do anymore from your therapy, from therapy? Um, I would say really the most obvious difference is that the level of care. So what that means is a patient, or I say patient, I'm still thinking in mobile crisis terms, but a client who has maybe a higher level of acuity, like I could just more intense. They need, you know, they're maybe in a higher risk level, like of harming themselves or others. Like it's just, they are really struggling to even be safe at all. That would be someone that would not be appropriate for coaching. So I'm, again, I'm, I'm going to be working with folks that are probably, probably, um, the ones that insurance wouldn't want to die, wouldn't want to reimburse for, because they're like, there's nothing wrong with this person. Like, what are you doing? That kind of thing. So, I mean, th- I guess that's might be oversimplified, but it's, it's basically level of care, level of intensity. Nice. Okay, cool. Thanks. Um, so I'm going to kind of start our descent <laughs> on our flight. I, I want to ask you, so for my podcast, it's called Confessions of a Reformer. I ask everyone that I interview my guests, like, what's a confession they have in their line of work, in their field of study, or their passion, right? Like, what are some things that, or what's something in particular that they kind of don't know what to do with, or maybe are embarrassed by, or ashamed of, or like, oh, God, this is here. Um, it, is there a confession, Andrew, that you would share with us in terms of your journey and your work and, you know, what you're, what all you're looking at? Oh... So <laughs> I, I might've already kind of touched on that a little bit. Well, no, I didn't totally. Um, I feel like I need to like preface this and all that, but I'll just say it to start with. I hate therapists. <laughs> oh, I can't fucking stand therapists. Um, that being said, I have a lot of therapist friends and I also love you guys, but, um, and I am one, but um, that the whole, there is such I mean, there's a lot of amazing therapists. There really are. But, um, you know, there was something that one of my professors said my second semester in grad school, and it's so true. And that is, he said, most people become therapists, not because they're going to make good therapists, but because they need therapy. He's like, there's a, there's a statistically high likelihood you probably should be in therapy. And that's mm-hmm. why you're here. And I'll be fully honest that that was absolutely me. Like. I had not done therapy prior to starting grad school and me starting grad school for clinical, I can't talk for clinical mental health counseling. Absolutely was driven by also this. I, I just knew that I, you know, I wanted to learn why I was dealing with the things I was dealing with. I wanted to understand more. I, and I did want to heal and it, felt like I, you know, as far as like power dynamics and stuff, I felt like I was being less vulnerable and in a safer, more in a driver's seat type position by, you know, going to grad school, getting a master's in this thing. Um, 
that was a lot safer than going to a therapist and being like, I don't know what the fuck is wrong with me, but I'm like at the end of my rope right now. <laughs> um, so yeah, back to your question. Yeah. Therapists. Um, there's a, there's a, cause there are a lot of therapists that are just kind of, I don't know. I don't, I'm not going to go through a list of all reasons I hate therapists, but there's, there's definitely a whole, whole vein of like these very disingenuous um, people, the ones who basically haven't done their own work. And I don't know, I can kind of tell sometimes, at least when I get into real conversations with them about certain things, it's like, I'll, I'll just leave, I'll leave it at that. But um, yeah, that's my, that's my thing. Okay. Yeah. I was, I was surprised. I was not expecting that. I think my mouth dropped open. My eyes got big a couple of times. Thanks for shooting me straight and being vulnerable there. That's I was genuinely surprised. <laughs> okay, so hang on. Let me just mirror back to you what I just heard you say. You hate therapists because, in your experience, a lot of them haven't done the work they need to on their on themselves, and that might actually inadvertently affect their ability to be a therapist for their their patients. Is that right? Basically basically or and then also the way i see it present they might be good with their patients but i then kind of see them show up in this really hyper vigilant aggressive space with other mental health professionals that just i don't know again it just kind of comes off really gross and defensive and insecure and i don't i'm still not sure why they do that but Mm. i I try to avoid interacting with mental health professionals on social media but anyway i don't know I, you know, I'm not trying to overanalyze the why they do what they do, because I mean, I, I don't know, but um, yeah, that, uh, but no, what you said that, I mean, that, that sounds like a fair summary. Cause yes, there are a lot that don't really do their own work um, or haven't really done their own work, you know? And um, so for people who are listening to you right now and they're like, Oh my God, therapy seems to be like one of the main go-tos for us, like anyone who's being morally responsible and like, a, like a, an ethical citizen today, going to therapy is like a an assumed thing on your resume. Like you've done that, right? It's a badge of honor that you're in therapy or you've gone through therapy. Um, if you say that to a culture like that or people who come from that kind of a value system, what's the alternative for them? What would you say they should be doing then if you're discouraging therapists? What kind of things should they be doing then to address their dysregulation, their trauma, all the things? What would you suggest as a happy alternative to the loud therapy-driven solution? <laughs> yeah, so I'm I'm not overtly shitting on therapy, but I do want to at least sow the seed that just because someone's a therapist has the degree and the licenses doesn't mean they are a competent therapist. Um, and I will also say, don't be afraid to fire your therapist. Um, listen to your intuition. There's a, you know, I, there will be things that are not comfortable in therapy, obviously that's part of the process. But the fact is, if, I mean, if someone's not, I think informed consent is important. And so like, if there are you know, I, again, just listen to just listen to your your um, intuition. <laughs> I, I come back to that on so many things in life now. Is like you know, you your body does have the answer. It's just about listening to it. But as far as um, other ways, other resources, I do think that um, things. This is these are going to sound really random. Some of them, but like yoga. I, I mean, that's that's a, a lot of people do that. It's I find that one is very good for just health benefits, but also just embodiment you know but also things like one thing that really helped me brazilian jiu-jitsu this is where the random stuff comes in um brazilian jiu-jitsu i mean i have all kinds of reasons as to why but it's again it's great for physical health but it really helps you become it actually helps you become pretty embodied because 
you'll learn how to um, not overexert yourself, but still, you know, the whole idea of like, you know, doing things with proper technique, as opposed to just trying to muscle your way into making something happen. Like a lot of metaphors for life there, I think. Um, That was a big one for me. That's because again, a lot of, a lot of mental health work ends up being trauma work, ends up being nervous system work, ends up being embodiment work when we really boil it down. So anything that's like getting you in your body and grounded is worth pursuing. Wow. Um, and without specifically naming anything, cause this is not my lane. And so I'm not trying to be an expert here at all. I will say though, I mean, honestly, the American mental health care set up the whole medical model that we have in the West, it, it serves its purpose, but it's very much oriented around symptom management, not embodiment. And quite frankly, a lot of indigenous folks, a lot of indigenous, um, practitioners, like I really have benefited a lot from their voices. Cause frankly, I, you know, they, I think are onto things that frankly, they and their ancestors have known about for years. And it was all of us colonizers who then fucked it up. So anyway, there's that little tidbit too. So I don't know that I have any one answers, like what to do instead of therapy. Cause I, I think therapy can still be useful. I think coaching can be useful, all of these things, but, um, anything that is getting you grounded and present in your body again, I think is a benefit. Nice. Okay, cool. Thank you. Um, I was surprised. I mean, you start talking about yoga and Brazilian jiu-jitsu and I'm like, what are we talking about? So you did a little bit of a chain reaction. There were like a um, reverse engineering. And it sounds like, let me mirror this back. And this is what I heard you say. Therapy, at the end of the day, the goal of therapy is to get you to a place of being embodied where you are connected to your body and you know what your body's telling you, you can interpret this accurately, competently, and then respond. Is that correct? I would say so. There might be therapists who disagree, obviously, but I would say that ideally is what it ought to be. Yes. Wow. Fascinating. Yeah. Again, because so much of it ties into nervous system and trauma stuff. Yeah. Okay, cool. Thank you. Fascinating. That did not go the way I, I don't know that I had an expectation, but it wasn't that if I had one. <laughs> Thank you for sharing. It was so interesting. Okay. So listen, Andrew, I'm sure as people are listening to you, they're like, oh, how do I, can I, you know? So I'm curious, first of all, how do people find you? Where do they go to get your, consume your content? I know we kind of mentioned this earlier in the beginning, but would you mind just telling everyone and you guys, I'm going to provide these links below the episode. So don't worry. It'll, it should just be below, but yeah. Andrew, how do they find you in terms of where the content you're putting out? Yeah, absolutely. So I am most active on Instagram as deconstruct underscore everything. But if you just type in any of variation of that, you'll find me. Um, I'm on TikTok by the same name. I am technically on Twitter, but I don't do much on there. So follow me if you want to, but don't feel the need to. You're not missing anything. Um, Instagram and TikTok. That's basically, that's kind of where it's at. Um, now, and, are you? Oh. oh, no, go ahead. Are you open? Do you have availability for more clients for your trauma coaching? I do currently. Okay. I I do. And, and and I also know that there are other, there are other practitioners that work for CTRR that I think also are taking on new clients. Um, because I I don't expect everybody to want to work with me necessarily. That's fine. Um, but yeah, so, uh, their Instagram. So it's called the center for trauma resolution and recovery. Uh, the Instagram is at trauma resolution and recovery, and you can, um, 
via that, you can get to the website. You can self-schedule a free inquiry call with any of the practitioners. Like, so you don't have to like, you can self-schedule. So it'll show what's available and you can just do that yourself. Um, and yeah, that's how you find me. That's how you link up with any of the other practitioners that we have. Um, yeah. And always my, I, I do actually try to answer all my DMS on Instagram. Don't DM me on TikTok. I get too many notifications on there and frankly, it's a mess. So I don't, I, I make content, but I don't engage with content over there. Instagram is how you get in touch with me. If you're really wanting to connect in a meaningful way, you can DM me and it may be two or three days, but I will probably be able to get back to you on there. Nice. That's awesome. Love that. Okay. And then with your coaching practice that you're part of, do is insurance accepted there for people? So no, it is, it is not. Okay. It is not simply because again, it is coaching. So the plus side is I can see anybody in the world. State lines have no meaning in that regard because again, it is coaching. Um, but then unfortunately, no insurance does not reimburse for that. So it yeah. is all private pay. Sometimes an HSA or an FSA will reimburse. No promises, but that has happened for a few of my clients. Okay, great. It's worth it's worth it's worth asking about depending on who your who your HSA is through. Yeah, great. And then on the website, is there a way for them to check out rates and all that as well? Or yes, I believe so. I believe so. I think there's a um, when you initially sign up for the um, or when you're initially doing that, there's like like a, an FAQ and some of those pieces. So yeah, right. everything is answered there. Right. Everything is answered there. And um, again, if and if anything's being unclear or whatever, like as far as I, like, feel free to DM me. Like I don't, I really don't care. Like, that's cool. I'm, I'm open to that. <laughs> right. I love it. That's awesome. So accessible, Andrew. It's great. Um, okay. Well, I just want to take a moment and say, dude, I'm, I appreciate the work you're doing. I love that you've gone out of your way to intentionally articulate the things that you do and that you make those things accessible to people and you, you know, make them palatable and put them in ways that people can easily consume your perspective, your opinion, the things you're critiquing and calling out. I think your drive for justice and wanting to care for, you know, humanity is evident. And I so appreciate your voice and effort in this space. And I love that you also work with people through religious trauma because I'm a victim of those things. And so I just so appreciate the path you've chosen and the ways that you've chosen to respond and give back. And thank you for doing this. Um, and then also thank you for being with me today and jumping on this um, episode with me. Um, so everyone who's listening, watching, we've provided the links below for you to find Andrew, both on social media and in coaching. Andrew, is there anything else that you're involved in that people can get access to or should check out that you'd want to share here? Um, I don't think so. I'm having to think about that. No, not currently. Yeah. <laughs> I think you covered right. it. Thank you so yeah, much. Yeah. yeah, for sure. I just want to make sure that you were getting that all covered. Um, okay, cool. Well, Andrew, thank you for joining me, everyone. Thanks for listening in. Um, just want to kind of throw out there if you're recognizing some symptoms that were discussed in this haphazard dialogue that you feel like are resonating with you it might be worth looking into whether it's religious trauma or childhood trauma or if there's just like stuff going on in your body that maybe you don't cognitively recognize or understand but some part of you is like oh there's a disconnect I'm not embodied here my system is dysregulated or whatever if those things if there's any kind of sincere curiosity or concern there i would highly encourage you to look into it feel free to dm andrew and he can point you to resources or whatever um but you know i would encourage you to check that stuff out because i think a lot of things that we see go wrong in the world is coming from people who have just not done work on themselves and they project they react they filter things 
Um, but if we could actually just address the stuff that we're bringing into every moment and that we see in the things that we're experiencing, like a lot of our own conflict tends to diminish, tends to go away. We get to start living fuller, healthier, happier, more rewarding experiences, you know, and we become a lot less toxic and abusive to people around us. So this is a really important work that I think everybody should be doing. So please, if there's something for you coming up, do yourself the the solid of looking into it at least and just pursuing is there some kind of answer or solution for what this could be pointing to um andrew is there anything you want to throw in last minute before i close it no that sounds great thank you <laughs> <laughs> all right everybody thanks for joining us we will see you next time and that concludes my interview with andrew kerbs uh, i'm really glad that he took the time to do this interview with me i appreciate the work that andrew does if you want to check uh, him out on social media just to follow him or if you want to hire him as your religious trauma coach, the links are provided below for you to check him out. I'd highly encourage you to do so. And then I also want to let you know about um, Numa Plus. It used to be a streaming platform for old products that I'd made that were still really good and helpful. But I have appropriated that space and I am now using it exclusively for content that's only available there. So I'm telling a lot of behind the scenes stories. Um, doing some more deeper dives into specific pieces of content and direction, and then also some perks and benefits and bonuses that are only available for people over there. This space is specifically designed to help fund and support the creative work that I'm doing. Um, and I'm hoping that it's incentivized enough for you guys to want to take advantage of that and join me over there. So if you haven't done it already, check out the link um, below uh, for NUMA Plus. Subscriptions are only available the first to the third of each month. So if you don't sign up between those three days, it's closed for the rest of the month. So be sure to capitalize on the next opportunity for that. I hope you go over there to help support my work and also just get into the things that I'm releasing there. It's getting really good. All right. Thanks for listening or watching whatever, whichever platform you're on. We'll see you next time. Listen, there's more where this came from. If you want to see how deep this rabbit hole goes, check out MikeMayashiro.com.